You're listening to The Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of this show, along with Akram's Razor. On The Razor's Edge, we take investing ideas that Akram has been studying as part of his trading or his investing service, also called The Razor's Edge, which builds on his two decades plus as a prop trader and investment researcher. We break down the ideas, the research that goes into them, and what might go right or wrong in the future. We also speak with industry executives and other investors and experts to better understand the opportunities and trends in a given space. And I bring a generalist take based on a decade of investing and reviewing thousands of investing ideas and seeing how they played out during my time at Seeking Alpha. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out Akram's work on The Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace by searching for The Razor's Edge. If you have a chance to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or to share this with a friend, we really appreciate it. You can also reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Occam's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me respectively or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment or trading advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to a given episode. This week's episode of The Razor's Edge moves us away from tech, at least a little. We speak with Scott Norton, the co-founder and CEO of Sir Kensington's, a condiments maker. Scott and his business partner founded the company in the wake of the financial crisis, and grew it to the point where Unilever acquired the company for a reported $140 million. With another economic calamity on our hands, Scott joins us to talk about both the broader macro environment and then how Sir Kensington's has been adapting to this climate. Of course, we can't totally set aside tech or finance, so we get into quite a bit of investing discussion and also get into software tools, collaboration, and how Sir Kensington's is adapting in that sense. It's a fun conversation. Scott is as thoughtful a guy as you'll find, and there's a bit of personal background between Scott and Akram to kick us off, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we begin, disclosures for this episode, which give you a hint of what came up, are that I am long Berkshire Hathaway and Google, Akram is long Slack and Twitter, and Scott Norton is employed by Unilever. We recorded this Tuesday, August 4th, as Hurricane Isaias raged up the East Coast, and it's possible that affected our internet connection a little bit, just as a heads up. Okay, let's get into it. Scott, good morning. Welcome on The Razor's Edge. Good morning. Good to be here. Before we get it, we've got a lot of areas we want to go, but before we do, you guys were chatting a little bit about this before we started. You guys have actually met quite a while ago. I thought that might be an interesting sort of background on why we're sitting in this virtual room together. How did you guys meet? You know, it's so serendipitous how we met. I, uh, in 2010, my, my good friend and I, Woody, we spent 10 months on a folding bicycle traveling through Asia. And through a friend of ours, we met Akram when he was working in Dubai. And we spent a couple of nights, I think we did some, some trivia. trivia. We, we smoked shisha. We ate pizza at the Almanzil Hotel. Yeah, uh-huh. and, uh, Bustakia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we had a little, um, we had a little haven in Dubai. 
uh, of getting together with your group of friends. So that was really nice. And then you were so thoughtful to put me on your email list and I was able to follow all your, uh, your market commentary and your, your rantings and analysis yes. and all that wonderful stuff. My, my, my deranged musings of back then, uh, you were actually at the time, which is by the way, I mean, it's, it's interesting, Daniel, is that he was coming out of you, our mutual friend was at Lehman brothers. That's right. And I was you're, too. At the, I don't know if people realize your background is like, you, you came out of school, what, 08? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you went to Lehman, was it Hong Kong? Tokyo. Tokyo, okay. Even yeah. So how long were you at Lehman? Well, I was at Lehman for just about only three months. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did my training course. I shipped over there and then the company went bankrupt. And it was split into different pieces, right? I mean, the, the operating companies were sold to Nomura in Asia and in Europe and Barclays in the States. And my group of about 20 of us in the high frequency and algorithmic trading division, we went to Mizuho Securities, where I stayed for about a year. Japanese bureaucracy was not what I was called to. And so I made the decision to, to change the chapter and, and bike around on a, on a folding bicycle for a while before founding Sir Kensington's. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's definitely was a good call. I mean, I, I was a person at that time who was coming, like when we met, you know, I was coming off that bearish kick from Le essentially Lehman Brothers, actually, in terms of the firm I'd worked at, ha really kind of played a part in putting me in, in, in a more identifiable role at my firm. But I do remember, Daniel, the, uh, when, when we did play trivia and we were talking about this, you are one of those people that I do recall essentially calling the ball out. We're sitting and we're talking. I'm like, oh, well, you know, what's what's your plan after uh, after biking across uh, Asia? And it was, I'm going to disrupt ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I'm listening. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so funny, too, because, you know, there it's such a magical time, really, you know, before you start a venture where you have that kind of hubris and you have that kind of confidence. I've never been more sure how difficult it is to disrupt ketchup and, frankly, to disrupt any industry. Now, after 10 years of being in it, when you're at the onset of something, it's all narrative, right? And it's all story and it's, everything is kind of going to break in your favor. But as I think it was Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And Sun Tzu said, no strategy survives first contact with the enemy. And so when you start a company, there's all these twists and turns and everything is more complicated and more multi-layered could have imagined. That is definitely what we learned with ketchup and what we learned with condiments. But we've been very fortunate to to break through and to to become you know more and more part of American food culture. Which, but for but for that what whatever it was, a couple of days in Dubai. I mean, it was you had it figured out where the money was coming from, how you're going to do it, and the name too. You had Sir Kensington, which to me I think is is an important thing. You know, like when you think back on uh, when someone starts something, you don't think like you have a name or an idea for something and you're like, once I have the name, the, the domain name registration is obviously in the internet, but like you had the brand and like you had it all thought out and yeah. it, wasn't, it, it wasn't Lord Kensington, wasn't Mr. Kensington, it was Sir Kensington. Sir Kensington, that's right. <laughs> and that, yeah, I, I think a name is so important for when you get the name right, you essentially get the positioning right and all the cultural references right. And then everything kind of flows downstream from that. Because if you, especially if you humanize it, right, with a character like Sir Kensington's, then when you go to say, okay, what are we writing on the side of the jar? Well, then it's not necessarily like, what do people want to hear? 
It's, well, how would Sir Kensington talk about it? What tales would he tell? What words would he use? What flavors would he be interested in? And so I think, you know, that obviously that's a very specific kind of way to humanize a, a product. But I think with a lot of brands and a lot of concepts, if you do get that name and that sort of first positioning right, then everything can sort of flow downstream for, for you and for your team because it's wrapped up in that positioning. I think you're probably, I don't know, Daniel, if you've ever met a person where they, they just kind of called that out and then you look back on it. Because I still remember when, when was I ever heard about it or read about it? No, I think I read about it when you guys sold the company in 2017. But I had a friend in seventh grade, actually. He's, he, he's one up on you, actually. Oh, yeah? Who, uh, who was like a bit of a, actually, he was, he was kind of slackish. He would come over and my mother would get on his case all the time. <laughs> and he would like he would he would lie on the kitchen floor and like kind of swim on the kitchen floor. He would he, he was a bit of a character. Interesting. And she'd give him a hard time. She'd be like, Scott, you got to do this, you got to do that. Go do your homework. Do this. And he's like, I don't need to. I'm going to be a rock star. Lo and behold, I run into him once in college, a couple times. See him a little bit afterwards, and then like maybe like my second year in Dubai, he like you know he's got like a number one hit band, like hardcore rock and roll guitarist. Wow. There you go. I guess if you, if, you know, if you're going to become a rock star, maybe I think I would have chosen calling that yeah. out. And, and and he did it in seventh grade, so he's got you a little bit on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. Kind of reminds me of when uh, I was still in college, and I got a call from a friend, and he's like, "Hey, can you help me? Can you help me build a website? Or do you need like good like web developers? We're trying to stand up something in like the next couple of days." And I'm like, all right, what is it? He's like, well, we have this idea that like, you know, there's this design conference in town in San Francisco and all the hotels are booked. So we want to rent out air beds in our apartment and we're going to give people breakfast and they're going to pay a fee and, and we can basically create like a little boarding house here for all the designers in town for this conference. And we're going to call it air bed and breakfast. And we want to like stand up a website for that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know about this idea. Like, this is like seems like really small, like potentially illegal. Try Craigslist, and then lo and behold, of course, it becomes Airbnb. And, <laughs> okay. and you right. know, tracking that story. I mean, I've just, I'm such a huge fan of those guys and that that whole team and their vision and everything that's become. But like, I always go back to kicking myself for not being like, oh yeah, I can be your web developer. <laughs> like, like mean, let me fly to San Francisco right you- now. <laughs> would you have traded places i think that's a that's a no you know <laughs> I, I think regret is a really dangerous emotion and, and i think even contemplating that like no i i think that i i wouldn't have traded places i'm uh very grateful and very thrilled for for the journey that i've been on one thing scott that's interesting is that you're coming out of lehman at the time and out of a similarly tumultuous time we're now sitting 10 years later and Sir Kensington's, we'll get into some questions about that, but obviously that story's gone out. Well, I'm curious, how much does that affect when you look back on it or even in your thinking at the time, the fact that you were coming out of relatively front row seating for what went wrong in the previous cycle? Obviously, you were new to your position there, but how much does that climate of a recession of things churning and changing in the world. How much did that help or did it matter to your launching of Sir Kensington? Like, did it inspire you? Did it help you come up with your game plan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
I think it's really, it, it's left a strong impression on me and it's shaped how I'm wired. And I'd say that it, it comes out in really two ways. The first is that I realize that I do thrive in times of crisis. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, it may have just practiced right on that that 10 year or that 10 month bike journey where I've been in all sorts of strange situations and been robbed by the police in Kazakhstan and found myself in situations we had no idea how to get out of, or maybe back to my Boy Scout days of sort of being prepared or being in the wilderness. And I, I thrive in times of crisis. And I think that when the house of cards collapses and everything goes flying, that is when, the, when everything gets reshuffled. And that is when the next order is formed. And so if you can have your wits about you and you can have your head screwed on right, and you can have the, I think the resources and the, the focus to be able to, to plan and to stay grounded in times like that, then you provide structure for other people. You think you inspire followership. And also that's when, then when resources are cheap and available and where people are searching for answers. And I think that that's really interesting. Many great businesses have been started in recessions. And I think if you look at economic cycles, when you start a business in, an, in, an, in a recession, and as it grows and you sort of later in the cycle have the economic tailwinds of an expanding economy as it goes from sort of being a startup to a scale up, we definitely felt that with Sir Kensington's. And I think that we're on a very we're at a very interesting time right now as the chips are being shuffled again, where a lot of new things be coronavirus in twenty twenty will be this very sting marker. Who knows what the stock market's gonna do? Who knows what the economy's gonna do? But certainly society will never be the same from you know before twenty twenty and after twenty twenty. And so I think if you can recognize that it's moments like this, that if you do put down roots and if you do put something together, you'll inspire followership and that this is when the opportunities are up for grabs. I think that's interesting. And then the second thing, the way it shaped me with, you know, with Lehman and all that is, is I'm actually quite risk averse. And I think I'm more risk averse than the average bear, right? And having been at the, you know, I went from being like, should I start a startup when I graduate from college or should I join an investment bank? Because a startup is probably going to go out of business, but investment bank will never go out of business. And then like I watch Lehman's like stock price and like un- like the chaos unfold in the financial crisis and there I am right at the center of it. And I think that when you have something like that which is which turns all your assumptions on their head and like so many other quote unquote millennials that sort of came into the workforce or came of age during the, the Great Recession and the financial crisis a lot of the truths that people hold to be self-evident about slow and steady stock market returns or just the normal bounds of an economy or the normal bounds of sort of a societal operating environment, those things return on its head. And so I think that I'm probably more prone to being a little bit like, okay, first and foremost, got to have a war chest, have a margin of safety on the bets that we make both personally and in the business. Think you know I've always been very uncomfortable with the kind of like go for broke mentality that a lot of very successful startups, some who faced a reckoning and some who did not, had from 2010 to 2020. I think uh, I'm 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 wired probably to be a little bit more risk averse than most entrepreneurs. Yeah, like Netflix for example, which we've, we we talk a lot about on here, you know, over the last year. It, it blows is, my is, mind. Netflix. I mean, it's a company that essentially could have died a few times really I, you, you actually do make an, a, 
I mean, you're you're essentially singing my song, so I, uh, I'm almost uh, <laughs> loving it. <laughs> but, almost loving it, Akram. Give yourself. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're 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 getting there, but you know, you're talking yeah. about that. Uh, you know, we're in a period right now, particularly from my standpoint on Twitter or whatever, where you know everyone's in love with software, and you know no, nothing can do no wrong, and money is cheap, and we're we're handing out money to to essentially keep society from collapsing, and there's a major disconnect and, you know, you talk to, you know, one end of the poll, like, you know, a surgeon like my father and, and, and people in the healthcare industry, then they're just like, what the fuck is going on in the stock market? Why, like, how is my business is down 50%? Like, what's, what's going on in your world? And I'm like, oh, you don't understand. Because it got so bad, we had to give away so much money. And it's like liquidity comes in and that this is just a party. It's a cash grab. Go in and get it. Yeah. So this is this is what's so interesting to me, and I I don't I want to make sure that we respect the space and that I don't pine with my naivety. But like, if you look at a balance sheet of the United States, and to some extent all developed economies, you know, your own Japan, when does the reckoning come? When does the bill come due? Because everyone was saying, oh, like ten years ago, it's going to come due in the inflation, right? Inflation, inflation, inflation happen. The opposite. Prices, like for most things, have gone down. So, like, when does the bill come due on this thing? I mean, you could follow Ray Dalio's sort of like debt super cycle, you know, where he talks about these blow ups every 70 years or whatever. Like, is that coming next? Where is the point where people say, we don't trust the sovereignty or we don't trust the safety of this debt? Or people just sort of get tired of saying, we're, we're, you know, these stocks are just simply too expensive for the earnings that they produce and, and or with real estate, real estate globally, real estate in China. You know, when, when do you think the bill comes due, Akram? Well, I mean, let's, obviously, I don't have the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. Yeah. Like, that's kind of like, uh, that, that's something we think about. It, it's funny you mentioned that because right around the time that I met you, I also went to, to a, a lunch with, at the time, Nassim Taleb and they, it was Empiric. I don't know if you followed the story about Empiric Asset Management that recently they made a lot of money on the volatility and the crash of the market. I, I didn't follow that one. Okay, so I'll there's like there's Nassim Taleb who, who 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 obviously you know at the time was the advisor to a fund that was essentially selling insurance. And I'm not gonna feel bad that I don't remember his name. The guy's Mark Mark something. Quick note, Akram is referring to Mark Spitznagel, currently at Universa Investments, the successor to Empirica Capital. Back to the show. Anyway, they just came back. They were just in the news and like Nassim's had this like back and forth with the California Pension Fund CIO because they wound down this essentially tail risk insurance bet that they'd been putting on for a while with them. And this Empirica just returned, you know, several thousands of percent return, et cetera, et cetera. And fascinating guy. But like we, we go to this lunch and this guy talks for maybe two minutes. He's marketing a fund and he's like, look, I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but I'm going to stay afloat buying insurance. And like, look at me as 2% of your portfolio. The other 97% is correlated to X, Y, and Z. In a crash case, I pretty much bring you back to outperforming the mean return. It's not exactly a very sexy thing to do. You're essentially agnostic. Because you're losing money most of the time. Yes, right? you're constantly losing money slowly, like you're getting knifed. You're funding it but with, with short-term volatility. He won't tell you how I do it. That's like his, you know, I'm not going to bring you in behind uh, 
the, the closet. Now you're coming from somebody who's uh, high frequency algorithmic trading experience there uh, at your start. And it's like, well, can I write an algorithm to do whatever you're doing? And maybe you could, but he's gonna charge you two and 20 when, when, when the world burns, right? And that's essentially a structure that, that, that's been set up. And he's not investing in a business model. He's not excited about SaaS or Jeff Bezos or the resiliency of Amazon or how amazing Lululemon is or disrupting anything. Along with him was essentially his social media marketer, in a sense, Nassim Talib on the back of, at the time, the financial crisis. And our people, the CEO of my firm and, and the head of principal investments at the time, were more interested in him. The, the guy running the fund, which was seeking to raise capital and you know, essentially pitching our firm around what they were doing, spoke for like two minutes. And then Nassim Talib spent an hour and a half talking about sovereign debt and hyperinflation, that, that's coming next. So it's funny that you bring that up because we have had disinflation and there's been so many reasons and obviously this has been debated because if we go back and you're coming from Japan, what's the most fascinating, like what started this all is Japan. ZERP started there and I mean, like we can look at the trade-off the Japanese had. If you look at Japan in, in, in the late 80s, seven out of 10 of the world's most valuable companies were Japanese. And there's this whole argument when we look at it from a demographic societal standpoint is when Japan's stock market and real estate market crashed, it was still good to be Japanese in your 30s as a career employee because they didn't offshore your plant to China. Unemployment stayed low there. Now you can argue what's the consequence of that? Well, nothing's come out of Japan. Samsung is now Sony. Apple is Apple. I mean, like the, it's Apple replaced what? Like every single thing you can think of that came out of there. The what's in the iPhone? Your, your, your VCR, your camcorder, your calculator, essentially a bunch of Japanese consumer electronics companies. Yeah. And so, I mean, certainly they have a, a lot of world-beating companies, but certainly not a lot of or brands. I mean, obviously, Toyota is extremely strong. It's not Tesla. Exactly. But, um, it's impressive. Toyota, to this day, is the only one in the top 50. So you go from seven out of the 10 most valuable in 1989. And like, look, we're Americans here in the United States. A lot of Donald Trump's entire worldview around trade is essentially can be boiled down to his real estate empire collapsing as, as the Japanese are buying Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach. Two things he relates to very well, the world's most premium golf course and the most prime Manhattan real estate asset. And in his mind, he's looking at a situation where it's like, we just bombed Japan in 1945 and dropped two nuclear bombs on them. And here I am going bankrupt and they're, they're collecting trophies. And like, if you watch his Letterman interview in 87, and I've talked to some people who used to work for Trump Airlines, uh, senior executives, et cetera, his worldview back then was we're getting screwed. Our government's not, is not protecting us. And I, Sounds familiar. I mean, I still remember as a kid, my parents bought a, a Toyota Land Cruiser and we were driving in a Toyota and a car cruised up next to us in, in, in Baltimore. I was like, buy American. That was it's crazy. What 30, 30, 30 years ago, and it's like we're coming full circle again. But you you made an interesting point just there about shuffling the cards. Yeah, the cards didn't get shuffled once the markets crashed in Japan. Financial crisis had major dislocation. Like some people got, got really wealthy, so things happened. And one thing, like so much time is spent talking about disruption. Great point. And when you, I mean, like what you what you did when you go back to the ketchup conundrum. And, and like I watching you on that podcast talking about that and Malcolm Gladwell lays this out about why ketchup hasn't been disrupted, why what worked for mustard didn't work here. And here you have what, what you've done over, over a decade. And you, you've pointed to something really interesting, which is 
resilient, really good businesses, can, one of the, a moat for them is to grow through recessions. Like Netflix, a lot of things that went in their favor, they got a really good deal from stars that they paid $30 million for Disney and Sony content that three years later would have been $700 million a year. Yeah. Or like think about like when Global Crossing raised billions of dollars to lay all that fiber. And I think Google bought it, Gary, right? Gary Vinick. Exactly. So the, the whole TMT bubble of, of 2000, right? That created the capacity that essentially Amazon and Netflix and Google all rode over a period where nobody invested in anything. I mean, you yeah. look at SoftBank and you look at, J at Jack Ma and he's like, oh, if I had this money to give to Bezos, you know, I would have been in Amazon and I would have been in Baba. And it's like, dude, no, your business model doesn't work from today in 2000 because that turns into Uber and, and Grubhub and 50 other things doing food delivery and so much capital being deployed globally to chase, we're gonna change construction, we're gonna, Compass is gonna come into real estate and we're gonna, we're gonna throw capital at these problems. Nobody was, yeah. nobody was throwing capital post-tech bubble. So you right. grow quietly, you get stronger, you get robust. And, and that's something I think that when you look at things today, the Fed's taken that away, essentially. Because things stay expensive, you're saying? Yes. And you're not yeah. forced to. Uh, you're not forced to basically. We look at this crisis, and there's been debates over companies like the cruise lines and the airlines. And we debated this on the last podcast, Daniel. You remember this one with, with Islam on whether or not, like, people have criticized the airlines for for paying right. for buybacks. And it's like, look, your airlines. No matter what, you're never going to plan for COVID unless you're going to invest in a vaccine, a vaccine platform for disease. And like, you're really not going to do that. Akram is referring to our conversation with Sam Zugayer of Berenson & Co., which we ran on June 18th, if you want to listen back to it. Back to the show. But there's a counter-argument that, no, you should have some savings. We've structured things in the United States from, from a monetary standpoint to put you in more risky assets, not to be sitting in a bank account, and along comes COVID. And what does everybody need to pay their bills? You literally need 100% replacement rate on employment insurance. And, and here we are today, you know, coming into this weekend, debating whether $600 or $200 or how do you extend it for how long? And is the calculation going to be based on what? And a lot of these things, it's like, well, shouldn't you, like here you are explaining that you learned from the financial crisis in 2008 and, and, and you, you were three months on the job at Lehman. Yeah. You come out of that saying, well, I, you know, I want to have a cushion for both in, in how I run a business and also in my own in my own personal life. What's interesting, though, right? Like, is that if you do have that, if you set that margin of safety and you're so dedicated to it, you, you we think back about like what Warren Buffett shared this year, saying, "Forget relying on the kindness of strangers. We don't even want to be in a position where we have to rely on the kindness of friends." and the market, the government has almost trained us to recognize this reality of privatized gains and socialized losses. And so those who are basically bracing that liquidity, embracing the fact that the government is going to step in, we're seeing a lot of stocks shoot up in value. And of course, like Berkshire Hathaway and that model being more risk off and more risk averse, because that's like part of their strategy about designing the strategy of the company for someone who has 99% of their net worth in Berkshire, you do end up lagging and you don't go out of business, 
which is fantastic. But you also end up sort of lagging the average, and you end up and you end up certainly lagging the winners. I think what's what you're saying. What's interesting is like the if you do take that lesson to heart from the last great recession and from the financial crisis, we are not necessarily seeing right now, at least in terms of like asset prices and certainly in public markets, a repricing of that risk and, and a repricing that would would just recognize the underlying economy. And and I, I I wonder like is that going to keep going? I mean, I know that you don't have a crystal ball in this kind of thing, but. I mean, it's obviously it's obviously not going to keep going. Something like yeah. this burns itself out in, on its own momentum. So when every single person's portfolio is like 30 SaaS stocks and they give you each exploit. I had a portfolio like this in 1999. So I could have walked you through it. I had Nortel that was like, you know, I, I talked to people right as we like coming out of school. And it's like, hey, you know what, dude, we buy everything from Nortel. I had my JDS Uniphase. I owned IMAX. I owned Marvel Comics. I, Blackberry. You segmented everything, right? Siebel, Siebel was my software stock. Tom Siebel was Mark Beanoff, essentially then. You could actually say Larry Ellison was Mark Beanoff. And Tom Siebel is workday management or, uh, it's, I don't know. But he, he was the most, <laughs> he, was, he, he was the loudest, most outgoing software narrative paradigm type of guy and john chambers was was tim cook cisco was the heart and soul of everything as far as the nasdaq and infrastructure and this long runway so like you can look at it today and you, and you can see similar things when you when you look at people posting their portfolios and i own zoom for this i own slack for that i own alteric for analytics I own Twilio for telephony, down the list. And then you're like, wait, like you own 30 stocks that are correlated to the same type of risk. It's, it, you, they don't own Unilever, for example. And I mean, if you look at, at, at frontier investors or emerging markets or the cycle, I mean, when you, w- w- when you and I met, that was commodity. That was, that was brick. That was Mumbai, Dubai, goodbye. If you weren't in those markets, you, you, you were a loser. Yeah. Nobody was talking about anything else then. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, that has changed tremendously. Yeah, we could go there. There's a lot of, we could go down a lot of paths here to talk about, you know, our software company is just a fundamentally different beast. But what would you like to get into? And why'd you invite me here today? Well, partly to talk investing, I think. But one thing that's interesting is you're not a, you don't run a software company. And I'm curious what you're seeing. First of all, what's it like running a, consumer goods company that actually has to manufacture and sell condiments and is not all at the desk. Like what's that six months into it or whatever we are, what's that transition looked like for you? How, what big things have you seen from 2020 for your company? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you mentioned actually making product, you've highlighted a big piece of it, which is that supply chain is a very important part of our business that needs to be resilient. And we have just been absolutely floored with our our manufacturing partners and our supply chain team to be able to have the agility to to shift things around and to keep their team safe as well, especially on the manufacturing front, which is no small task. We've also definitely seen you realize how long and how complex these supply chains can be. I mean, we've we've had challenges getting certain machine parts and bottle molds because they're all being used for hand sanitizers to manufacture hand sanitizer bottles overseas. And so you do get curveballs like that, which has of course been a challenge. 
I think what's interesting on the the market side for in terms of demand is that we're a we're a food business. Our business is both retail as well as service. So the restaurant side has obviously been hit tremendously. But when you think about on the on the retail side and the call it the true consumer side, we make food that is one part novelty and one part nostalgia. It's entertainment, but it's also comfort. And at a time like this, where people are spending more time at home, they're experimenting, cooking new things, they're looking for entertainment within the four walls of their home. There's not a lot of options that people have and not a lot of things that that people are doing. And people don't have the ability to go out to restaurants and eat. And so what we're seeing is a a tremendous demand in the home for people really wanting to, we say, elevate their home restaurant, grade their home restaurant. And so not only do you have people eating dinner at home every day, but also with people at home, you've gained a new day part in lunch where people aren't going to the office, office workers aren't going out and getting their salad, they're they're eating at home. And so of course, not everyone is all working from home all the time, but a big chunk of our customers and a big chunk of our audiences. And so it's been really interesting to see that all adjust and to recognize that we have a role to play as a company to give people those the the recipes and this sort of new level of entertainment and ideas of what they can do with food. So that's that's something that's been a big shift for us right now. And we've seen a lot of love through the pandemic amidst all the human tragedy because I think- So I'm your target there in terms of uh, Tell experience. me, how can I offer you? I mean, just we were discussing this earlier in terms of crowd cow and ordering meat online. And I bought a sous vide machine. Cool. I bought carbon steel pan from Maiden. So that's like an interesting thing. It's like, like you said, you can't replicate the experience of being in a restaurant. Uh, you can't replace it, but you can start trying to replicate it at home. And yes, and you're upgrading Kensington like is crazy, a right? Brand, right. Exactly. I mean, if you're getting a, if you're getting a carbon steel pan. And you're and you're getting a grass-fed meat share FedEx to you, like you're eating quite high on the hog, you know. And and that that people look if you're if there's only a few things that are going to bring you joy and that can bring you entertainment, of course you're going to splash out. So yeah, and actually like higher end condiments definitely fall into that category. So I'm sure that we go amazing on a crowd cow burger seared on a carbon yep. steel pan. <laughs> It's 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 the perfect mix. Well, you know, you guys, what you know, what I discovered about you, which is which is crazy, is your vegan mayo. So, yeah, like the, the, like your whole story with that is just freaking wow. You know that you, you, you essentially took hummus poop and turned it into like vegan gold. Yes, and it's it's the viscosity and the umami, and I'm like, what, what like what, what is what's going on over there? It's like. The science guy. Yeah. For those out there who were uninitiated, in, in 2015, 2016, we said, could we bring integrity and charm to mayonnaise, but without eggs? And so, you know, most as a sort of pea protein or soy protein that was a little bit grainy, a little bit vegetal. And what we learned is actually that the, uh, what's called aquafaba, which is you called it like the, the you know, r- runoff, basically like chickpea broth or chickpea water has the ability to emulsify oil into the perfect taste and texture of a mayonnaise. And so on top of that, we put in a little bit of seaweed uh, for that umami flavor, which is also important if you're replacing egg yolks, which is the traditional mayonnaise emulsifier. 
and that created this incredible silky balance of flavor. So yeah, our uh, our vegan mayonnaise is is going strong this year and deli- delicious product. Which, by the way, I like in theory can be used for tomb. Do you ever make tomb? I have made tomb. Yeah, and I you know tomb. I found it frankly hard. You know, just um, from a just a physical perspective to get it to emulsify. Like I, I, I've had to add eggs or had to add aquafaba to tomb to get it to really pull together. Are you able to do it with just oil and water? Yeah, yeah. Oil, food processor. I mean, oh, food processor. My, my, my yeah. mom's trained me well on how to do that. That's I mean, good. we used to, we used to, you know, whenever we go down to the Eastern shore, there's a chicken place and then growing up, we would make our own tomb on the drive from Baltimore to Fenwick or you know or Ocean City and there's like a place like a midway that had this great barbecue and like we'd bring our tomb stop eat uh, oh, uh, on the amazing. trip down I think I pass by that chicken place every weekend by the way when I when I drive to to Lewis from St. Michael's it's still there and like they, they 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 obviously upped it they've got like you know a big cover a canopy and, and whatever but they never got into the tomb but tomb now you can get a Trader Joe's right oh, I mean cool. they, they have they have garlic like essentially pretty good garlic paste does that compare to your sauce the your, your garlic sauce or is not uh, uh, the the moroccan one because i haven't yeah, tried that I, yet ours is a little richer just because we don't use so much water in it compared to tomb so i think the tomb is a little bit it's lighter you could probably take down more of it ours is probably a little less garlicky and a little bit richer but definitely but definitely a tomb was a tomb was a uh, inspiration for our garlic sauce for sure Scott, when you were saying that you're seeing a lot of love, I forget exactly how you put it, but you're seeing a lot of people getting jazzed up. Uh, is that coming to you through just sales or is that coming to you through marketing channels or social media? Like, are you, have you guys set up that sort of, I, I would imagine you have, given that you talk about the story about Sir Kensington, about the character that you're bringing to condiments and all that, but are you setting up those receptivity yeah. or those feedback? Yeah. Loops? So, so I think what's what's interesting. I'll give you a little bit of a long answer to this. Most consumer goods companies, especially you know all consumer goods companies of scale, grew and came of age and operate around this model where they have customers, right, which are retailers that they reach through physical shipments and through meetings, and then they have a one-way relationship with consumers, with the public, which was for most of the 20th century through the television industrial complex. And what makes these newer consumer goods companies, to Kensington's included, interesting and special and different and why they're able to grow so quickly is because from their beginning, when they were born in the digital era, the relationship with consumers and with eaters, as we call them, is not one-way, one-to-many. It's two-way. So we have a Slack group, for instance, for our, our hardcore super fans that we call, well, we, we have our, our super fans, we call them Which is awesome, buds. by the way. It is I mean, awesome. I mean, it is awesome that you have a Slack group for your condiment uh, brand. Exactly. Our aficionados and trade recipes and we can ask them questions. And then we have about 8,000 people as part of this, basically a forum email group, kind of our own, almost like private social network, like sort of like a Facebook group forum that again is called the Taste Buds. And then we of course have social media where we're being tagged dozens of times a day. And of course, most of our customer service requests, store locator, question about a product, all that stuff comes through DMs. And so 
I think the most important thing that when you think about like developing an edge as a consumer products business is that you have a really well-attuned ear for insights and you can develop empathy that inspires you and your product development and innovation team to build new products and to renovate existing products based around eater needs, right? And I think the there is a place for market data. There is, of course, a place for things like focus groups and consumer testing and all this kind of stuff. But in the old world, those were the only tools that you had. And now those tools for us take a backseat and it allows us to have a much more intimate relationship with the eater and with the market. And so to answer your questions, when we think about where do we see this excitement and what is our evidence? Like, yes, of, of course we see it in sales, but that's in some ways, you don't really get a lot of fidelity there and it can be kind of like a lagging metric. But with, with the intimate relationships that we have with our email inboxes, right, with our our Instagram DMs, with our Slack channel, with our social group of the taste buds, this is where we really get a sense of what we call the love letters that come in around the brand. So that's where we get a lot of enthusiasm. What that poses to me that's interesting is the you're at you've been at Unilever for now three years or so. And I'm curious, I was I was going to say, well, how much has Unilever helped you? Like how much how different would this experience 2020 be if you were oh, yeah. still independent? But I'm also curious, I would imagine that it also flows that's something that you and the other acquisitions they made, I assume that's something that mentality sifts up to other parts of the business, or ideally, there should be some cross-pollination from your sort of more agile startup listening to your customer roots, right? There's, well, yeah. I mean, in the first place, I mean, we're we're very grateful and thankful that we have the stability of Unilever during 2020. I mean, the cash or fundraising, or again, that supply chain resiliency, I mean, the just frankly, like the support, right, when it comes to how do you keep your team safe, how do you keep your manufacturing safe, safe, era like this. I mean, we're tremendously great. We're very grateful for that. That's been very important and, and crucial. And then in terms of the, you know, being part of being part of Unilever, I mean, absolutely part of it is about part of the value to them is about the cross-pollination of our of our tactics and of our of our capabilities and those kind of strategies. Though I'll also say that like it's slower than you might think, right? And that a lot of the the winning strategies that were born in the old world, they still work great for big brands. And a lot of those habits and, and a lot of those strategies are also hard to give up because they're ingrained in how the leaders and the managers have have grown up in that industry, what kind of evidence they put stock in, and also what scales. And so yes, you know, we've cross-pollinated and learned a lot. There they've learned a lot and we've learned a lot. But there's a place for there's there's many different strategies, many different paths up the mountain. Well, so can I can step in here for a second, by the way, because we kind of kind of passed over one thing. I did want to like you know when you said what do you want, we get get you on here, <laughs> get, ask you some of the some some harder questions where I'm genuinely curious about your business. So going back to this, what's work from home has triggered and how things have changed and how we connect with food. And obviously, what you're doing on the condiment side and in a business that you're running. If you were to think about pre-COVID to post-COVID, do you look at what's transpired as you have a bunch of consumers who all of a sudden, going back to shuffling the deck, who are up for grabs for you to change habits? So when I look at my habits, before COVID, I was drinking Starbucks, Vainted Vanilla Cappuccino, maybe once, occasionally, twice a day. I've been on Nespresso capsules 
since yeah. February. And I mean, today actually I went in, in this friggin' hurricane that's going yeah, on over here. Yeah, I'm in it too. Uh, yeah, and I, I went and I got a, a cappuccino before our uh, for, from Starbucks drive-through for a call, but. I've spent a ton less on Starbucks, obviously, without the shadow of a doubt. And there's a question of whether or not from a coffee consumption habit, it's a habit you build. Six months is a long time. Yes. I mean, it's an eternity in something like that. So when I think oh, about yeah. if you got like I've started to use your mustard, your Dijon mustard. When you think about that, for example, and even, even your mayo starting to experiment with that versus like I'm so conditioned to Hellman's. It's the same thing when I think when you think of Tabasco or when you think of you know Old Spice and McCormick's and when you think of Sriracha you sauce. Mean Old Bay, Old Bay, yeah, yeah. Um, which I, which I, by the way I, I freaking love. And when you think about those things together, and it's like yeah, it's tough to break away from that brand. But if all of a sudden I'm willing to try a different mayonnaise and I like you it, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is this is a great shuffling of the deck when it to consumer preferences, and I think that the side of this company leaders managers will have a totally new conception about what work from home means whether it's possible and like the role that zoom plays love or to hate it i th- and i think you're absolutely right that for something like nespresso or for something like sir kensington's there is this moment where if you can adjust and adapt and meet that that eater need then you can create these lifelong habits for sure I mean, I've had tremendous amount of personal habits that have changed from pre-COVID to now. And it is something that I think has been a hard reset and that, that companies you know, in the consumer space that can speak to that moment and can deliver on people's needs have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. Now, you also have a major, major challenge and major, major headwind, of course, which is that we're in a recession. We're about to be in the depths of a deeper recession. And so there's all, it's also just going to be harder to win consumers. There's going to be less money spent and people are going to, out of necessity, be, be more low, open their pocketbooks up for things, right? And so, you know, you might have for, you know, for everyone that is, okay, now going to opt from Starbucks to Nespresso, you might also have people opt from Starbucks to, oh, wow, Folgers, 1868 what's this new thing that they have right and all of a sudden like people go back to Folgers and they're realizing like oh this is pretty damn good coffee right this is fine enough for me and so you will you will also have like i think a lot you know in the next two three years whether it's dollar store retailers or other you know big brands value driven brands that are maybe like a little bit less interesting and sexy but like deliver on that core proposition of the product category and also deliver it with great value, you're going to see a resurgence in those too. So it's not just necessarily the time for these new school brands to shoot ahead. I think we're also going to see stalwart brands get the wind back in their sales, which typically happens during recessions. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's the, it's the classic defensive argument. Like on the one end, I, I would say we have a lot of listeners who are focused on the acceleration of the future. and We do so much on SaaS and, and so much on tech, but defensive businesses like going back like daniel's invested in an uh, rv manufacturer and we've 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 discussed that since it started william sonoma something bought off off the top of like immediately once i saw what was going on like with my own behavior it's like all right I need to invest in that right now uh-huh. when you think about that and when you see pending home sales and you see what these like at home group for example was a retailer that i would have told you four months ago was dead 
And they're like, well, sales are up 50% and people are decorating their houses. And I mean, when you think about the outdoor projects and Home Depot and whatnot, but do you still like, do you as a CEO of a company in, in, in this type of space, look at it and say, like, do you still have one foot out the door and you're like, you know what, we're going right back to the way things were in like 18 months. Do you struggle with that? Because I find myself struggling with that occasionally. Because, like, I think if you're talking about e-commerce focused websites that are seeing, you know, 50% year-on-year spikes, you're not. I don't think you're going to keep seeing that, right? I don't think that that's going to sustain. I do think that there will be there will be a great leap forward, you know, in e-commerce shift to e-commerce and grocery online grocery delivery and things like that. Your crowd cows of the world see a bump, but I don't think that the they're going to just stay at the level of the top of the crest of the wave, right? I think that people are going to fall back. I spent, I, I spent $2,000 on crowd cow. Then it's like, I can't eat any more Wagyu. I mean, it's just, thank you. You know, Kagoshima is great, but. Yeah. And I, I, and I don't think that you're going to do the same thing next April, right? If you can also go out to dinner and you can also wander down to the butcher shop and do the same thing. So, you know, I, I do think that we will see a great leap forward there, but I don't think that it's going to be like, I don't think that it's going to sustain those good those growth rates so is that difficult from a brand positioning standpoint if you i don't know how much you're, you're capable of talking about in terms of sir kensington pre-covid if you looked at your channel was airlines big for you i don't i don't maybe you mentioned that before i don't know we did have we did have an airline business yeah we did have an airline business it wasn't tremendous but now of course that's threatened and perhaps threatened for good what i would say here is that really your channel strategy has to to change and so we put a lot of effort that was on restaurants is now on e-commerce and e-commerce is delivered tremendously, but your brand positioning strategy doesn't necessarily change tremendously, but your channel strategy has to change. So I think that that's the way that we think about it just in our kind of specific category. I also think it is really highly category specific because if you are a retailer or if you are making homewares, you just have a different sort of route to market than condiments, for instance. So I would say like for us, it's more about, okay, how do we move to mess- sending that message and enabling people to upgrade their home restaurant? How do we give people meal inspiration ideas? And I'd say that if that's what we're leaning into, what are we leaning out of? What we're leaning out of is being more like diet compliant forward. So whether it's like keto or paleo, these things that I think were like really part of people's consciousness in a big way last year. Now, all of a sudden with the pandemic where people are, they're seeking more comfort, they're not necessarily trying to like shed the pounds through keto. They're sort of going back to food for more fundamental reasons of comfort and entertainment. And so I think we've seen a lot of gas come off that trend. And so we, of course, follow suit with that as well, which is that was never really our jam, though we do have a lot of keto customers. Well, that's that's kind of a relief because I get tired of hearing people talk about their diets. So if that's what we're leaning out of, I, I'm a yeah. fan of that. Okay. Well, Scott, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your morning to speak with us. Really interesting stuff. Obviously, a great story and to call your shot as it was from Dubai and to follow through and then just to hear how things have evolved in what's been a pretty wild... I, I, I always say you would have thought that that 08 to 2010 period would have been as bad as it gets, but I think we're in wilder times right now. Yeah. So appreciate you shedding light. Oh on yeah, that. well, just an, I'm no expert, but just from my little small corner, I'm happy to shed the light that I can. Well, one more question uh, for you. One area is is work from home tools. 
I mean, we spend a lot of time obviously talking about these software companies and are you guys like, how big is your team? What have you started using? Did you onboard software immediately that you felt like you needed that you didn't have? Yeah. You know, we, we really, um, we didn't move to much new software. So I think that generally people have kind of like systems and software fatigue. We looked at, oh, should we create one of these things where, you know, you have a virtual environment and people can move around the space and we can create a replica of the office. And it's like, well, do we really need that? Like, do we really want people to sign up for that? So I would say like Slack has definitely embedded itself deeper into us. We've also, because Unilever runs on Microsoft Teams, Teams, I think is actually like, I, I thought that I, I like wanted to dislike it when I started using it. And then I was like, damn, this Uh-oh. is a great product. So Uh-oh. I don't know what your thoughts are on Teams, but I find Teams <laughs> to be, I find the video to be very high fidelity. I, I think the interactive component with like, well, I, mean, if, if, I have no problem if it's against Zoom, but you know, against Slack, obviously I'm, I, I've, you know, been very, oh, in the, Slack's in the video Slack can't hold a candle to teams. I mean, Slack, well, exactly. But I mean, that's not, we're not concerned about that as far as Slack. Right. So when we, th- okay. when we get into that, when we no, get but, into the no, investment but, argument, no, no, teams, teams cannot do chat like Slack can do chat, but teams can do video. I think better than Zoom can do video. Okay, so are you using Teams on a regular basis for Slack, uh, for chat, or uh, or is it like file sharing no, Excel? For video. For video. Okay, so video. Yeah, okay, sharing, and that's and look, that's Stuart Butterfield's argument is that yes, Teams yeah, yeah, Teams is a Zoom competitor. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's right. Which is which is where you get this, but there's an also an argument that like it stunted Slack's growth because everyone has, you know, switched it on. Right. He's like, we, we pay them not to turn it off. Right. This it's, it's that kind of argument in terms of chat. It hasn't been there. And look, I mean, if you talk to people and I've talked to, to a ton of people about the tools that they use over this time period. And that's where you get into this debate with Slack is that if I wasn't using Slack, like you, you're running your own Slack community for, essentially your aficionados, right? I mean, you're, you're in that top one percentile of, uh, of, of Slack. Experience. Slack power I, I, users. I, yeah, ex- exactly. I have a Slack community now too. It's fantastic. So I, I love it as well, but I mean, it's intimate. It's like your own little mini social network, but for the average person who wasn't really doing much workplace chat, if they just turned on Microsoft and you talk to someone, they're like, yeah, it's good enough. And that's where Slack all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, that's a whole addressable market that we would be getting into with our superior product. And you're, you're essentially, you know, knee blocking us. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how it's going to play out. And I, I do think that there's plenty of room for everyone in this space. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge market without, without a shadow of a doubt, but I mean, there's also, they're all huge multiples. So you don't buy second, second place at 30 times sales. Yeah, I mean, you you may see like we we may make ourselves feel better about it, right? Like it's the market, the TAM is is monstrous. But then you're like, you know what? I can go find a winner uh, in a segment of software for like you know we had Superhuman on here. Superhuman to me, like Hey came out. I tried both of them, and like Superhuman won. I, I like, couldn't that was do it. Hey, do Hey. I why? I want, it's another one I wanted to like, but I was just like. Is this really necessary? Am I really going to change my email address? Exactly. Like I found the interface to just be a little bit wonky, and I'll, I, and also, if you're diligent about filtering, you can recreate a lot of those features in Gmail. So I don't know. I and you know what? I haven't seen anybody email me with a hey address since then. Like I feel like they made a huge amount of hype on Twitter, and like and I admire them tremendously, and 
think they did a great job with their campaign, you know, against Apple, but like, is the usage really there? Like, are people emailing you with a Hey address? I mean, look, Raul, on, our, on, on, on when he came on, called it a publicity stunt. And I mean, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with him. And I, I'm also a big Jason Fried friend, but like, it's hard not to. It, it's, it reminded me of like the like the expensive license plates in Dubai, $999 a year for, for two letters. And it's like, what? why? Again, who's like for someone like me, I would get that. I would get that email and nobody would be emailing it. I would feel like literally like an idiot because it's like, why? Like, uh, I, I'm not at a company. Right. I, you know, have essentially been working for myself for almost nine years. And it's like, all right, like, what am I going to just message everybody? Like, hey, guys, email me at hey now. Because what? My biggest problem, what Superhuman did for me, and I don't know how organized you are, but it, like, I wasn't good at filtering. So they taught me how to do that. They held my hand. So when I went to hey, like the, the, the block everything where you have to make a decision, I'd be like, Amazon is recommending you five books. What do I do with this? Where does it go? And I'd sit there and I'd think about it and I'd waste time. <laughs> and I'd yeah. be like, Jesus Christ. And like, I eventually just gave up because there's emails that are just kind of weird where you're like, where does this fit? It's not personal. It's not a receipt. It's well, have not you read, news. Have you read Getting Things Done by David Allen? No. Is that, a, is that a strong recommendation for me? Oh my God, you have to read it. <laughs> me I mean, all down. of these things, superhuman, Gmail, and hey, are all built on these getting things done principles of, you know, do you do it, delegate it, or defer it? And what is actionable and what is not actionable? I mean, you got to read. Okay, see, I'm behind the times as usual. Uh, you're probably closer than you think. But gentlemen, I have to get back to making and selling the world's finest condiments. <laughs> Might you just Dude, when, when, when are you, you going to introduce Tomb? Uh, maybe we will. I mean, maybe we will. Uh, you know, I think that's. I think Do you think the people good. are ready for it? I think it's ready for a garlic tomb. You, you do a partnership with Nando's Tomb. You're good to go. That sounds delicious. All right. Well, until next Tomb, <laughs> I uh, wish you gentlemen. Uh, I, I, all the best, and uh, and yeah, maybe we can have a socially distanced beach day if you want to come down to the eastern shore. Uh, I will definitely look into it. <laughs> it's, it's a, we can do we can do twelve feet apart just to be safe. <laughs> Sounds good. Right. Thanks, man. Okay. Thank you so much, Thanks, Scott. Neil. Thanks, Thanks for us. Cheers. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, disagreements, or anything else. We will be publishing at least one episode every other week for the summer before we ramp up in the fall and love to hear from you with ideas. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd also be really grateful. This has been a Shortman Studios production and our theme song is Move On by SoCal. Thanks for listening and see you next time.